Hello and welcome back to the Literary Salon podcast. It's time for another book of the week. This is where we get to tell you about the titles that we are most excited about. We do the work of sifting and reading uh, to find the stories that we think you're really going to love the most. And this is another one of those. It's a memoir. You know that we love memoir here at the Salon, both for our events and for our podcast. It's called In Ordinary Time, Fragments of a Family History. So that's In Ordinary Time, Fragments of a Family History, and it's by Irish author Carmel McMahon. Now the name caught my eye because McMahon is a family name in my family, so we're probably related somehow. Um, Anyway, it was just a reason for me to pick up the book, because you do always need a reason. Um, and I'm really glad that I did, and you will be glad that you picked it up too. It is a personal and cultural history of Ireland from its pagan origins through British colonialism and the oppressive role of the Catholic Church to now. So it's a sort of, I guess it's a character study of a country in a way, as well as a cultural and personal history. And obviously the focus is on Carmel and also on women. Um, It's tells us, well, where to start? I suppose the inciting incident for this is 1993. Carmel has less than a month's rent in her bank account and not much more in her pocket. And like so many people before her, she leaves Ireland for opportunities abroad. She arrives in New York City where she works as a model and she waits tables and she builds a life as the year passes. She builds a life for herself But then her brother dies suddenly in a car accident and she's thrown into a kind of existential crisis. In her grief, she turns to drink and for the next decade, her life unravels. Um, She feels rootless, she feels aimless. She is in need of something that she's not getting from the people around her or from the world. And you know, it's, I have really personal experiences of, of, of people who are, are using alcohol um, or abusing alcohol and it's tough to live through and it's tough to read but also for somebody like me who has that personal experience, seeing it written down in the way that Carmel writes it makes me feel less alone. So I think that's what memoir does when it's at its best anyway. It's a very literary memoir, it explores themes of loss and generational trauma and the cyclical nature of all of this, and time itself. No less a person than Joseph O'Connor has praised this book as a vivid, evocative and resonant counterpoint of time, memory and meaning. Now, what a quote from what a writer. Anyway, here is Carmel with a reading. Hello. I'm Carmel McMahon, and I'm thrilled to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new book, In Ordinary Time, Fragments of a Family History. This reading is from the essay, The Great Hunger. I had emigrated to New York from Ireland in 1993, and eight years later, during an alcohol-fueled identity crisis, I decided to become a US citizen. While studying for the US history part of the exam, I became acquainted with America's colonial past and began for the first time to consider colonial history in Ireland. In this essay, I explore the way historical trauma reverberates through my family's lives and how enacting a ritual might help in the healing of it. Here is a short reading for you. 
In Ireland, both sides of my father's family were poor farm labourers like their county down neighbours, the Brontes. A whole generation of these ancestors was forced to emigrate during the famine genocide. Most crossed over to Glasgow in Scotland, a thriving industrial town in the mid-19th century. They crowded into tenements and were despised by lo the local population for being drunk and dirty and ignorant and carrying all kinds of diseases and all the things people still say about new immigrant populations. One of my paternal great-grandmothers died of Bright's disease during childbirth at the age of 37, leaving four children under the age of 10. They were sent to the poorhouse as their father could not work and take care of them. He was heartbroken and destitute and while drunk, he signed up with the British Army. My family spits his shamed name, Lawrence Bradley. He became a colliery pithead sapper in the Royal Engineers and he was, less than a month after the Easter Rising in Ireland, blown to smithereens over Flanders fields. Here is the triumph of colonialism. You can destroy the soul of a people. You can take their land and their resources. You can make their children cogs in your machine. And even as they are rising up against you, some of their own will be laying down their lives in your name. I have done mortifying things while drunk. There have been foggy mornings where I imagined all was well, before an image from the night before flashed across my mind. Did I dream it, I'd ask myself, scrambling to brush the strokes of memory back into a coherent image. I wonder if it was so for Lawrence Bradley, coming to with the king's shilling in his hand. Or was it his intention all along, a suicide mission, to escape the overwhelm, oppression, trauma and grief of his short life? His daughter, my grandmother, Elizabeth, at age 14, was sent alone by train to Paisley to work in service at the Gardner residence, a wealthy family in the town. She shook in terror for the entire journey, for she had heard what happens to young orphan girls with no one to protect them. She had heard about the masters and the sons and how they took what they pleased and about the mistresses who looked the other way. Lizzie worked her way up from scullery maid to parlour maid. Her mistress was a kind woman who brought her tokens from her travels, an ivory inlaid box from India, a delicate wallet of red leather from Morocco. Mrs. Gardner converted to Catholicism and through the church, she made an introduction between Lizzie and her future husband, Willie McMahon. While Lizzie knew how very lucky she had been, she always said her life began at the age of 28, the day she married my grandfather. Months before her wedding in 1929, Lizzie's younger brother, George Toner Bradley, at age 25, boarded the SS Cameronia in Glasgow and set off for New York City. I watch YouTube videos of recently colorized film of New York in the 1920s, and I am struck by how similar it looks. The same streets with their recognizable buildings and landmarks, the flat iron, the old lampposts, the railings at Central Park. George landed in Ellis Island and no one ever heard from him again. Where did he go? Was he turned back? Was his name changed? Did he start a new life elsewhere? Did he get into ironwork, his family trade back home? Did he watch the people jump from the towers of high finance when the stock market crashed five months after he arrived? Did he get involved in the gangs that ruled the city? Did he die anonymous alone and alone on the streets of New York? Lizzie worried about her little brother until the day she died in 1983. A decade later, I set out for New York without so much as a thought for any of them. Lizzie and Willie had five children. My father, the youngest, moved back to Ireland in the late 1960s, where he met my mother and they set about, they joke, replenishing the famine decimated population. 
As I traced the story of my father's family, I rooted out a few, the few photographs of them I had collected over the years. I placed them around my desk and examined every image, looking into the eyes of the long dead and trying to imagine their everyday lives, how they spoke and moved, what they thought and how they loved. I began to dream about them. The flickering images of childhood visits to Scotland returned, like when, in the dark hours of the morning, my parents loaded us all into the Citroën Safari and we drove up past Belfast in the north of Ireland to the ferry port of Larne. Passing through the no-man's land of border country, Dad shouted suddenly, not a bloody word, because he had seen them from a distance. He slowed and stopped the car, and in the misty light, we watched them jump from the hedges and approach like an apparition, three uniformed British soldiers carrying guns. Not a bloody word, Dad said again as he rolled the window down and greeted the young men. They looked at us slowly. We barely breathed. I began a rosary in my head. Dad used his friendly voice and said we were just going on holiday back to the old country. He showed them his British passport. They asked if we were all his, seven children and a very pregnant wife. Dad made a joke and they finally waved us on. The air returned, but no one spoke for the rest of the drive. On the ferry, Mam found seats on the deck and as she sat back in her white cotton dress, she closed her eyes and turned and turned her face to the sun. She was smiling as we all took turns putting our heads on her belly to feel the new baby kicking. I was thinking about the soldiers and the fear in my father's voice. I wondered if they would have killed us, even Mam, with a new baby growing in her belly. I continued to flesh out fragments of conversations, glimpses of interiors, forgotten feelings, writing out towards something niggling at the periphery. I had a vague memory of being taken to Edinburgh as a child, the grey buildings, the cobblestones, the narrow streets. Why had we driven there from Paisley? I googled Edinburgh and the first results that came up were of Edinburgh Castle. Yes, I had been there before. I had seen the name of my great-grandfather listed in the logbooks from World War I. For some reason, I knew I had to visit and see it again. I sent an email to my French friend Valerie asking if she would be, if she would be up for meeting me there for the weekend. I poured a spoonful of New York soil into an old medication container and packed it into my suitcase, not at all sure of how I would use it. I've come to learn that ritual is just about taking an action, so the associated thought, desire or intention can be impressed upon the body and made into an experience. On a cold, crisp afternoon, Valerie and I walked up the cobbled hill toward the castle, catching up coffees in hand. Inside, I told the security woman the story of Lawrence Bradley and his son, George Toner Bradley. She said that photography was not allowed and she would be going into the next room where she would not see me taking a picture of Lawrence's name. Coming out of the castle, Valerie and I headed down the street to St Giles Cathedral. Built in the 14th century, this structure has spent half of its life as a Catholic institution and half as a Protestant one. Inside the grand nave, tourists took photos of the impressive blue vaulted ceiling while an enthusiastic minister tried to corral them into the pews for evening service. Members of the faithful had been trickling in. Some sat with their heads bent amid the old stone and hushed tones as if they had always been there through time and change deep in prayer and bathed in the dusty shafts of low afternoon light. We came upon a small unoccupied side chapel with carved wooden panels on the walls, an empty altar and a warm wooden bench for rest and contemplation. This is the place, I told Valerie. I took the container of New York soil out of my pocket, held it in my hands and said a prayer for my family, the living and the dead, then slipped it behind an old pipe. 
I imagined the soil contained particles of my missing granduncle, and in bringing it here, I hoped at least ritually to reunite this son with his father, two bodies literally and figuratively erased by colonial history. Maybe this is why I went to New York all those years ago, an unknown motive behind the escape, to heal the family haunting that had shown up in me, to see my forebears fully and through them to draw a timeline and to see my place on it, to acknowledge their lives and their suffering so that those of us who come after can tread a little lighter, not on Ireland or England or America, but on the earth that will hold the dust of us all. Thank you for listening. She picked a beautiful line to finish on there, but the book is not short on beautiful lines. It's full of gorgeous writing and original poetry that will have you listening to it again and again and reading it again and again just for the pleasure of it. And the book even features a road trip across America with Dolly Parton. All right, she's on the radio, but you know, a road trip across America with Dolly Parton, that's something that I need to add to my list. What more could you want? Many thanks to Carmel McMahon for gracing our show with a reading from her book, In Ordinary Time. Her memoir is published by the independent press Duckworth Books and they are celebrating their 125th anniversary this very year. So happy 125th to Duckworth Books. You don't look a day over 124. You have all the joie de vivre that you had at 24. So stay indie strong. We love an independent press here and we've had independent press Duckworth books on before. So lovely to have them. We'll have loads more indies for you this year. Speaking of indies, you can find Carmel's book in your local independent bookshop or in our shop on bookshop.org. If you liked A Ghost in the Throat or Notes to Self, you're going to love this book. So get your hands on it. Thank you for listening and join us again soon.